Hello, Chris? Chris, are you in there? <laughs> so I wake up and Jimmy's got his face pressed against the glass. So uh, I jumped out of Bobby's car and into Jimmy's and off to Nashville we go. Greetings, folks. Thanks for joining me for your favorite podcast about banjos and the people who love them. That, of course, is the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. And I, of course, am Keith Billick, your host for the episode and for every episode. Uh, I have a lot of uh, important announcements to, to make before we get started here. The most important of which is the holidays are upon us, folks, and I am here to help you with that pesky shopping list that you all have. It's going to be a one-stop shop for you this year, folks. That's because over on BanjoPodcast.com, you're going to be able to see the full line of world-famous official Picky Fingers branded merchandise. And I'm talking four brand new colors of t-shirts available in all sizes. The lightweight hoodies, the knit beanie hats. You lose a lot of heat in the head, folks. You're going to want those to keep warm. And stickers, as well as downloadable music and banjo tablature for the Picky Fingers theme music. So regardless of who's on your list or what they're asking for, what they really want is some of that official Picky Fingers merch. So once again, that's over at BanjoPodcast.com. And then you also get the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast in the process. The other most important news to tell you about is also a way to support the show and also a way to receive excellent rewards for yourself in return. And that's by becoming a very important picker, a VIP supporter of the show over at patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Today's VIP supporter of the show is Sean McCormick. Sean is a Hall of Honor level VIP supporter, which, as many of you know, is the highest civilian honor bestowed upon podcast listeners. So, Sean, thank you so much for your generous support of the show. I really, really appreciate it and couldn't do it without you. On a related note, another important announcement is that one of the perks that all the VIP supporters get is we all get together for a monthly VIP lounge video call. So that's me and your fellow supporters uh, hopping on a call to chat about all things banjo or life, which is kind of synonymous anyway. Uh, but anyway, every December, I open up the VIP lounge video call to all listeners, whether or not you uh, have enrolled on Patreon or not. So keep your eyes out for that. You will still have to go to the Patreon page to get that meeting link. But uh, this year's all-listener VIP lounge is scheduled for December 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, to my European and other time zone listeners, I have heard your desperate pleas for uh, a different time on the VIP lounge to, you know, have it not fall at like one or two or three a.m. your time. I, I have heard those pleas and I will uh, act on that. But unfortunately for this one, we're sticking with 8 p.m. Eastern time. So once again, over on patreon.com slash banjo podcast, sign up to support the show or go check it out if you want to join in on the VIP lounge for everybody. Thank you. 
And before we get to the episode, I do have one more announcement, and that is about a brand new website called Daily Banjo Licks. Now, Daily Banjo Licks is a fresh approach to learning and applying bluegrass banjo licks to popular jam standards. Banjo player Bennett Sullivan, who a lot of you might remember from episode 95, came up with the idea for Daily Banjo Licks on a summertime hike in Western North Carolina. And clearly it's a concept that would be a fun way for people to learn about bluegrass, improve their ears, refine your timing, and just become an all around more versatile picker. The concept is very simple. Every day you get a new lick sent directly to your inbox. Each lick features tablature, a backing track, song examples, and repeated slow versions for those of you who are learning by ear. So this is how you get in the game. You go to BanjoLicks.com and sign up for a free seven-day trial. And listeners of this podcast can even enter a coupon code PICKY50 and get 50% off your first month of lick learning. At Daily Banjo Licks, you'll find licks of all types, including traditional, modern, kickoffs, endings, and backup. Plus, there's a song section for you to brush up on your bluegrass repertoire. So once again, head over to BanjoLicks.com, use the coupon code PICKY50, that's P-I-C-K-Y-5-0, to try it out for free for the whole month and uh, make some licks stick. As always, you can also contact the show at PickyFingersBanjoPodcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you there. Today's featured guest is Chris Warner. Chris is best known for his stints touring and recording with the great Jimmy Martin. In fact, many of you probably heard from Chris along with Tom Adams a couple episodes ago talking about Jimmy Martin. But uh, for this one, it's just pure unadulterated Chris talking about his background and his playing style, along with a few more Jimmy Martin stories along the way. And uh, he really epitomizes the classic Jimmy Martin sound of super solid, hard-driving banjo playing, which I know we all love. Chris also happens to be one of the most in-demand technicians for banjo setups and conversion neck building, and uh, he gets into a bit of that too. So put your hands together and give a warm picky fingers welcome to Chris Warner. My name's Chris Warner. I'm from Redline, Pennsylvania, which isn't too far from where you're sitting right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> the first time I ever was introduced to five-string banjo playing was in high school assembly program. Yeah. Uh, two friends of mine that I didn't even know at the time, I even, I was friends with them in school, but I never even knew that they played. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they they come out on stage at this assembly program. Yeah, one's playing the banjo, and the other's playing the guitar, and uh, it just blew me away. I, I just I never heard anything like that before. Wow! Okay. And I was and I was like fifteen. Sure. And uh, I liked rock and roll at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, yeah. Elvis Presley, uh, and still do, as a matter of fact. Sure. But. Uh, 
I had to learn how to play this banjo, you know. So uh, I had asked uh, <clears throat> Ray King, who was the banjo player, uh, if he could show me something on the banjo. Yeah. I didn't even own a banjo, you know. Right. He said, well, you're going to have to get a banjo. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I got home and pestered my dad. Uh -huh. I said, I want to learn to play the banjo. He said, no, I'm not buying you another instrument. He said, you tried the guitar, you tried the trumpet, you tried the accordion. Okay. And I said, but this is different. This is different. <laughs> <laughs> so... We found a, a friend of ours in Redline, an old old man who had a banjo, uh, an old Orpheum. Uh, the problem was it was a four-string, mm -hmm. and I didn't know the difference. That's how naive I was. Yeah, about banjo's a banjo. A banjo's a banjo. That's exactly right. Uh, so we bought it. I remember it was $15. Uh -huh. So I show up at, at Ray King's place to take a lesson. He said, well, you can't play that. I said, why not? He said, that's a four string. You need a five string oh, like no. this, like this one, you know, yeah. with the fifth string on it. I thought, oh no, now I have to go back to dad <laughs> and tell him I need another banjo, dad. And you wasted some money. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and uh, this was in the mid sixties, actually early sixties. So uh, I ended up, uh, finding an old Montgomery Ward banjo that I think was in, <clears throat> went through every banjo player in York County's hands <laughs> as their first banjo, uh -huh. uh, which was fine with me. I just wanted a, a five-string banjo. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's how I got started. Uh, so you mentioned that you had tried your hand at, what you said, guitar and trumpet and a, an accordion, but you, you knew somehow that this was different. What do you think it was about the banjo that had that kind of effect on you where you basically refocused your life into yeah. to pursuing this thing? Well, the sound of it, I'd never heard anything like that. Hmm. And I guess it's the same thing that affects everybody that hears a banjo for the first time, you know. Uh, I just never heard anything like that. And uh, even though I tried these other instruments, they required learning to read music, uh, which never interested me at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so when he first started showing me on the banjo, there was no music involved, no sheet music involved at all. You yeah. know? It was just learning the, the finger work and uh, tap your foot. And, you know, uh, so I didn't have to sit down and learn actual music mm -hmm. as far as uh, reading notes. Although I did early on, I, I, I took piano lessons when I was a good bit younger, and uh, uh, I had started learning to read music then. Yeah. But uh, it was that time where when I was in, in the house sitting at the piano trying to learn to play the piano, all my friends were outside playing, <laughs> you know, and I could see them through the window, yeah. you know, I thought... I want to be out there, you yeah, know. Yeah. I don't want to be in here learning to play the piano. Now I wish I could play the piano. But back then when you're a kid, you know, that's that's not, yeah. that's not the thing, you know. Of course. For most people. But that's how that's how the banjo thing got started. Were you exploring I mean, you said you were a fan of rock and roll. I imagine that once you started playing this instrument, you maybe changed your listening habits as well and started discovering people that played the kind of music that you wanted to go after. What was a uh, what were your early memories of, oh, of that? 
<clears throat> that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, I never stopped liking early rock and roll. Still mm -hmm. love it today. Uh, but uh, yeah, I started to uh, started to buy records, like most everybody mm -hmm. has done. Uh, outside of somebody sitting down with you and showing you, the only way you can learn is to listen to records. Yeah. Which back then, with long play records, you used to have a speed on the record player that was uh, 19. You know, there was 33 and a third, 45. Yeah. I'm sorry, was it 19? It's real Probably slow. Probably 16. 16, that's yeah. what it was. Uh, uh, real slow speed. Right. So, you know, every note would be boom, 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 <laughs> real low pitch, you know. Yeah. But it was slow enough that you could grasp it and yeah. and and slowly figure it out. Started to go to shows and festivals wherever I could. Do you remember particular musicians that you gravitated toward in terms of enjoying their style or enjoying their music? Well, probably like most people that start out, you like it all. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's got a banjo in it, you like it oh, all. It's for you, you yeah. Because you don't know the difference between a real excellent banjo player and a mediocre banjo player. It just all sounds great, you mm -hmm. know. But even back then, I, I gravitated toward Flatt and Scruggs and Jimmy Martin, yeah. uh, Bill Monroe, uh, early Stanley Brothers, The I guess the— top four yeah back then yeah for sure yeah and you said you were going to local shows were, were you able to see prominent acts like the ones you just listed or was it this more um local band type of concerts well there wasn't much locally going on uh we ended up going down to uh sunset park have you ever heard of sunset yeah. park yeah that was a big country bluegrass park in uh down toward philadelphia mm-hmm and they had all the uh, top bluegrass bands. In fact, predominantly through the summer, they would have mostly bluegrass bands and some country bands wow. thrown in there. But they had everybody showed up there. Wilma Lee and Stoney Cooper, uh, uh, Stanley Brothers, Don Reno and Red Smiley, and all of them Great. came Great. there. Yeah. So early on, I got to see all those greats, you yeah. know, and then they had... Out in the parking lot, they had uh, jam sessions, especially back then. The jamming in the parking lot seemed to be bigger than it is now, really. <laughs> and that would give you a chance to practice what you've, what you've learned, no matter what level you were at. So we just kind of lived for Sunday afternoon to Sunset Park. You yeah. know, that was the place to be if you love bluegrass. Not to mention making personal connections with other people who yeah. might live, you know, relatively close to you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're close enough to New York City that uh, Davy Grisman and the band he was with at the time, uh -huh. Winnie Winston on banjo, and uh, they would <clears throat> they would drive down to see some certain bands, you know. So they would show up, but uh, it was just a anybody that you ever talked to that's been to Sunset Park in those early days will tell you the same thing. That was just the place to be. Yeah. You just you I've just heard lots of fun. You just lived for Sunset Park. You yeah. Know? That sounds great. So, I mean, we'll we'll get to it pretty quickly, of course, about how you're, uh, you know, you became um, more of a professional player within a, a few years. But the fact that you were able to advance that quickly, what do you think were some of the secrets to you being able to really get up to speed in a hurry? Practice, a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. I, 
<clears throat> I was uh, absorbed in it so much that, uh, and this is probably not unlike a, a lot of musicians did the same thing, but in my case, that's all I wanted to do. Uh, I'd come home from school, go upstairs in my bedroom or out on the front porch and, and practice. I probably practiced a minimum of five hours a day, wow. every day. Yeah. Uh, I got to where I took it to school in the morning, and I was in the agriculture class, and they had a, an office space down by the uh, classroom that they weren't using. They just used it for storage. Mm. So uh, they let me come down there with the banjo. And the, the free period in the morning, uh, I'd go down there and practice the banjo. They gave you your little banjo room? And you got it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, then I'd take it home with me and uh, practice all evening. I didn't run around much. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, my parents would even... My dad, they never, they were supportive. They didn't try to stop me, but they did really push me to do it. Yeah. Got you know, it. Yeah. It was, uh, they weren't bluegrass fans. Uh, there again, they probably never heard much of it. Like I didn't up till. Yeah. Right. Till that, that school program. But uh, they never tried to discourage me. But when I'm sitting up in my bedroom, cranking on the banjo, <laughs> playing the same licks over and over and over. I know it must have drove him nuts, but Dad would holler up. He'd say, come down here and watch TV with the family. He said, put that thing down. Yeah. So I'd come down for 10 minutes, and then I'm right back up again. Yeah, humor him a little bit <laughs> yeah. and get him off your case. Yeah, exactly, the, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so uh, I didn't even realize until the last chat we had was uh, you had quite an opportunity come up when you had only been playing for what, you said three years or so? About three and a half years before I went with Jimmy. Yeah, tell me how how that came about. Well, I was playing with a band in Baltimore, uh, and Bill Monroe was playing in the area, and him and his whole band stopped by the, uh, the bar room where we were playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, I'm going to ask him for a job, you know. So I did. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, he wrote my name and phone number down and uh that was the end of that discussion but but ever since then i was kind of waiting for his banjo player to quit so maybe i'd get wondering a wondering if that phone would ring yeah, yeah exactly and he had heard me play because we were the we were the house band at, yeah. at that bar whether he liked me or didn't like me i had no clue you know <laughs> but uh, hoping that he liked me enough he'd he'd call me sure so okay a few months after i talked to bill uh, Jimmy was playing uh, a few miles south of here, and uh, I went down to see him, and uh, Vic Jordan was on the banjo, and Bill Yates was on the bass, and Vassar Clements was on the fiddle. Oh, wow. And they were sitting out in front of the stage on a, a bench, and I had known Bill Yates and Vic Jordan prior to that. Mm -hmm. So I went over and sat down and started talking with them, and, and I said... Uh, Bill was looking, had in that period of time, was looking for a banjo player. So I was hoping to get a call. You Vic know. had put in notice or something well, like that? Well, see, I didn't know that at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in the conversation, I, I mentioned to him, I said, I'm, I'm kind of hoping to get a call from Bill uh, about the banjo job. And they yeah. kind of all looked at each other and sort of snickered, you know. Yeah. And I said, 
okay, what do you know that I don't know? <laughs> you know, because uh, you could tell something was going on there. Yeah, yeah. Vic said, well, he said, I got the job. I said, oh, the, the Monroe job. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so I said, well, that's great. You know, uh, I would have liked to have had it, obviously, but I'm glad you got it. You yeah, know? yeah. So Vic said, well, Jimmy didn't find anybody yet. Would you be interested in playing with Jimmy? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually... I actually like Jimmy's music better than Bill's overall because I liked that rhythm I was hearing. Didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. But I liked that that feel that Jimmy got. I liked the songs that Jimmy was doing. And uh, so I thought, yeah, I'd be interested in that. Yeah. So he went down and talked to Jimmy, and uh, Vic came back up. And Jimmy had heard me play, too, at some parks where they were booked and we were the— house band. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he remembered me or not, or how I played or how I didn't play, whatever. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, Vic came back up and said, do you have your banjo with you? I said, yeah, I got the banjo. He said, Jimmy wants you to come down in the, the little building that they were using as a uh, uh, dressing room. So I went down and uh, and I knew I knew all the songs. Yeah. So I could kick off most anything Jimmy wanted me to to play, but I wasn't playing it the way JD would have was playing. You know that right. that rhythm that uh, Jimmy likes. So I played uh, whatever he asked me to kick off and play, and uh, he said, uh, "Okay," he said I'll I'll let you know we're going to be up in northern Pennsylvania uh, in a couple weeks. He said uh, he said I'll let you know by then. Mm -hmm. Uh, sure enough, a week or so later, he called and said, can you meet me somewhere? We're, we'll be coming back from that park, back to Nashville on a Sunday night in the middle of the night. We we were playing a local park then, mm -hmm. so. And you had to meet Jimmy in the middle of the night? I had to. For, <laughs> that's a story in itself. Uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you. We said, I'll meet you at, at such and such an interchange at Carlisle, okay. Pennsylvania, on Interstate 81. Uh -huh. He said, we should be coming back through there about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, was know? the understanding that this was for another audition or you're hopping no, on his bus? No, and No, he's hiring me. Okay. Yeah. So I got a, a local musician here, Bobby Diamond, who's since passed on, but he played bass with Bill Monroe. He's a good banjo player, good fiddle player. I said, Bobby, I said, I got to meet Jimmy up on 81 near Carlisle, can you can you run me up there? And so he did. So we got there first, and we're sitting up on the interstate at this interchange waiting on Jimmy. And we fell asleep. The next thing I know, there's this, there's this knocking on the window. Hello, Chris? Chris, are you in there? <laughs> so I wake up, and Jimmy's got his face pressed against the glass. You know, so, so uh, that's everyone's worst nightmare. <laughs> well, like. yeah, yeah, it could have been. Uh, so uh, I jumped out of Bobby's car and into Jimmy's and off to Nashville. We go. He had he was using uh, on that show. He he used Rule Yarbrough. Yeah, uh, and Rule was, of course, they were all in the car. So that's how I ended up going with Jimmy. Interesting. Um, now you've you've referred a few times to you not knowing 
I forget how you put it, you not knowing how Jimmy wanted it or not having the exact rhythm style that Jimmy wanted to hear from his banjo players. Go into that a bit. What what do you mean by that? And uh, how did that develop for you once you signed on with him? Well, the rhythm, the rhythm on the banjo, uh, uh, your right hand picking hand, uh, instead of being... It, it's more. It's got a, it's got a rhythm and a lope a lope to it. Yeah, it's the same feel as uh, a fiddler starting off a fiddle tune. Do It's that same type of feel on the banjo, and um, a lot of banjo players now are playing that because they've picked up on that, you know, over uh-huh. the years. Back when I first started, you didn't hear banjo players doing doing much of that, uh, if any. They were doing more of just the, the straight feels, just, more similar to like an Earl Scruggs type of sound? Yeah, more of a, more of a, a, a rhythmless, uh, it's not exactly the right way to put it, but it, it didn't have that... Uh, It was it was just more of a straighter roll yeah. to it. It's a little hard to describe. You can hear it. But a little extra bounce to it or exactly, something. Exactly, exactly. Because that's what Jimmy's playing on the guitar, that mm-hmm. same type of rhythm. Jimmy's goal is to get everybody in the band playing that same rhythm. And when you when everybody in the band is playing that same rhythm, it just that's what gives Jimmy's rhythm that extra, like you said, bounce or the yeah. rhythmic feel. Makes the whole thing work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's not so syncopated, if that's the, the right word, but a, a good extreme would be the, the Stanley Brothers feel, mm-hmm. you know, where the where they're doing more like a... on the guitar. Yeah. You know, Jimmy's doing doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-a-doodle-
like tapping your foot yeah, to the into time. A metronome or something. You're either yeah. in time or you're out of time. And I'm thinking, well, I'm in time. What what does he mean? Uh-huh. You know, uh, and I couldn't figure this out. Uh, and he kept saying, "You're not you're not playing the right time, and it's time, and that's where it's at." You got and it's driving me nuts, you know. Uh, finally, <laughs> I think the rest of the band was sitting back, getting a kick out of this. It was frustrating to me. They had probably all been through it yeah, already. Yeah. yeah. And and Vassar Clement said one time, and I told him, I, I was saying, man, I said, he's driving me nuts. I said, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm in time. Uh-huh. Vassar says, well, I think what he means is when he says timing, he means everything, rhythm, not just meter, being in time, but but drive, the rhythm in the roll, uh-huh. you know. And once he explained it to me, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> now I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and ever since he told me that, then I was off and running. That then I knew what he when he'd say timing, I knew he didn't mean meter. And, you know. and and your interpretation or what you were able to get from Vassar was he meant that that bounce that, that you just demonstrated exactly it's exactly what he meant the okay. bounce and then and then drive you know where you punch notes. You know, there's certain certain points where you have to punch it. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing a, a certain assertiveness to the to yeah. the articulations. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. And just just instead of just doing just kind of bland. Yeah. You know, uh yeah, you're picking the notes, but there's nothing behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, he you know there's there's drive and emphasis. Yeah. Uh, that you need to do, and when Jimmy would say timing, that's what he means. He, All he, of it. He yeah. incorporates <laughs> he incorporates everything in that one word. Yeah, timing. So once I knew that, I didn't have much problem after that. Okay, I knew what to strive for. You know, other than just that overall, <laughs> that overarching concept of timing. What other feedback did you get from from Jimmy about your banjo playing, or was that pretty much once once you had it, it you were good? Well, once I started to understand that what he was getting at, we could have uh, more understandable conversations. Yeah, about it, I could talk to him. Before then, I'm thinking I'm in meter. You know, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm in time. Yeah, I'm sounds not, very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to do for you, you know. Uh, but once I once Vassar explained that to me, and I still think they were getting a kick out of this. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, Did you then experience that with other band members, and and were able to get a kick out of it yourself, watching them kind of squirm around? Well, to... I I wasn't that evil minded. <laughs> uh, I don't like to see people squirm. And <laughs> that's one reason I, I, I sat down with Tom Adams when Tom wanted to go with Jimmy, and I was explaining all this to him so it'd be a little easier on him. Yeah, he didn't have to figure it all out on his own. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of a lot of musicians, particularly banjo players, uh, don't stay with Jimmy very long because hmm. he's hard to take. Yeah, especially if you're new, uh, they're confused. They don't know what to do for him. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy's mindset is, well, if I tell a guy he's doing really well, 
he'll get the big head and leave. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly the way he looked at things, you know. So he doesn't tell you too often. I, I finally stood up to him one time and I said, I said, uh, you know, you've got to tell me when I'm doing right because yeah. I don't know what to do if you don't tell me when I'm doing it right yep. and when I'm doing it wrong, you know. But gradually, we, me, me and Jimmy got things uh, in sync to, yeah, he, he to where I finally understood how he uh, tried to explain things. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he wasn't real educated. He only went to eighth grade in school. So he, his vocabulary was limited as to how to, to make, make himself understood mm -hmm. to other people. Um, uh, but that, that was just Jimmy. But we got, we got kind of on the same page. Yeah, you know? kind of had to meet him more where he already was. Yeah, uh, yeah. Interesting. You used the word, uh, when you were talking about the timing, you used the word uh, drive a few times. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something that I, I personally admire a lot about your playing is very, you know, the, the word hard driving gets tossed around a lot with banjo playing, Ooh. but I definitely think you have a lot of that in your playing. What does that mean to you, and how did you work on that? Well, I always liked <clears throat> hard-driving music, even if it was rock and roll, mm -hmm. uh, like Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, I didn't like Beach Boys. The music they did was great, but just not my kind of uh -huh. rock and roll, you know. I liked <clears throat> Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and, and Elvis and those guys that really got in there yeah, and had know. that extra attitude to yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's the same way in uh, bluegrass, uh, particularly the banjo playing. There's times where you want to punch a note mm -hmm. um, and there's times when you want to lay back on it, on some notes, and then you you punch it at the right spots. If you listen to a good lead singer, they're doing the same thing with their voice. You, you kind of caught my ear just now when you said certain times where you want to drive the note or have it lay back a little mm -hmm. bit, you said. Right. Do any examples come to mind of a song where you might want to do one versus the other? Well, uh, you do that You do that in every song, especially up-tempo stuff. Uh, like um, Walk and Shoes, for example. Uh, right there. Right there, where you slide in, instead of instead of making it real bland, you know what I mean. just places where instead of instead of just kind of floating through it yeah with no emphasis you know mm -hmm. 
And you hear most banjo players now have picked up on that. They're mm -hmm. all playing great. There's a lot of great banjo players. Back when I started, there was a lot of banjo players that could play the notes, but they didn't have any oomph. Yeah. You know, they didn't put anything behind it. Interesting. And I always liked that. I always liked the drive. Yeah, it sounds great. So much more inter interesting yeah, aspect e to it. Even with uh, chromatic playing the melodic stuff, you can put drive in that where a lot of guys don't do that. But it Absolutely. But you can, you know. Yep. Sorry for the interruption, folks. We'll be right back with the rest of the episode in just a few moments, but I had to take this opportunity to tell you about some of the sponsors of Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The first one up is Elderly Instruments. I always tell people how Elderly is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage stringed instruments of all kind. They're the first place I go for all my banjo needs. And also, by the way, any guitar, violin, ukulele, mandolin needs you have, it, they're going to have all of that. But you don't need to take my word for it anymore, folks. Elderly Instruments was just named the best small business in the country by the United States Chamber of Commerce. So first of all, congratulations to Stan Werben, Lillian Werben, and all the rest of the Elderly family for that remarkable award. And second of all, I encourage you all to go see what the fuss is about. Either get into the showroom in Lansing, Michigan, or visit them online at elderly.com. They have the entire inventory up there. They ship worldwide, and they have that great customer service that wins folks awards. Uh, and they're just a phone call away if you ever need any advice on any of those products. So once again, elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is also sponsored by our good friends over at Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is the nation's number one site for streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, where you can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Here is some of the selections, and this is just the banjo stuff. You can take Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, or Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, no matter what course you select, it's going to come with high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And perhaps best of all, Picky Fingers listeners get a month free by entering coupon code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. So once more, go to pegheadnation.com and enter Picky Fingers at checkout to get your first month free. The Picky Fingers podcast is also brought to you by Sullivan Banjos. Now, I'm very familiar with Sullivan Banjos. I've been playing one for nearly 20 years. I get tons of compliments on that banjo's sound, and that's really no surprise because the Sullivan name has been synonymous with incredible banjo workmanship and tone for decades. So whether you are looking for a pre-war style traditional design on through the craziest 
custom design you can think of, Eric Sullivan is here for you to make your dreams a reality. So get in touch with him over at sullivanbanjo.com, email him at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com, or sometimes the best way is just the old-fashioned way. Give him a call at 502-365-5022. And don't forget to tell him that Keith at the Picky Fingers Podcast sent you. You were demonstrating Jimmy Martin's concept of timing and what that meant to you as a banjo player, playing with that extra swing or bounce or whatever you want to call it. Right. And you had mentioned that learning to do that actually makes other playing, such as uh, I think particularly slower playing, you said that makes that a lot easier. Why don't you explain how that works? Yeah. Uh, Well, usually um, that rhythm... On the, on the roll kind of helps you stay in uh, in time because you have that rhythmic feel in your body, in your hand, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, you can go almost... You can get pretty slow with it without getting out of time or sounding like you're about to get out of time. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, it still uh, sounds groovy and musical. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where most banjo players don't want to play anything with a roll, it's too slow, uh-huh. uh, understandably, you know. But if if you play with that rhythm, that that bounce and that lope, it it gives you a better feel for it. Mm-hmm. And and you can stay in time a little better <clears throat> when you do a slower tune. Right. And that same piece being played w- without that type of rhythm just kind of sounds a little flat, I think. Yeah, there's just uh, there's just no life to it to me unless right. unless you have that feel. And I've done it so long now that I can't do it any other way. You know, <laughs> right. it's hard for me to demonstrate playing without that lope in it yeah that that rhythm you know because that's just the way you you learn to feel it after a while just that's feels natural to me i guess maybe that's a an interesting question is once you learn to play with that jimmy martin rhythm does playing with that tend to apply easily to playing in other musical situations or do you have to then switch away from that as you go to play with other bands, uh, you know, different types of rhythm guitarists or or band settings? Well, it, when I go to another, uh, fill in with a band or go with another band, fortunately, the, the, the last band that I was with, a band called Bluestone, they all liked that kind of rhythm. Mm-hmm. They all tended to play that, that with that kind of feel yeah. to the music. Uh, so it was no issue with them. You could, you know, could fit right in. Yeah. Other bands that I've filled in with that don't have that rhythm, 
I just almost, I'm so used to playing that way that if they don't feel comfortable for me to play with rhythm-wise, I just kind of tune them out. Hmm. And, I, and I just play the way I feel. Yeah. Like I want to, uh, like I'm used to playing because I can't go back. You know, I, I, I can't unlearn what I've learned. Right. You know? Yeah. And if they're playing more of a, of a straighter uh, rhythm, like, like say the Stanley brothers, like, you know, it's still hard for me. I, I still, <laughs> I, I, that's why I would never fit in playing with, with, you know, a band with the Stanley Brother type feel. Yeah, it would that's be, amazing. It would be hard for me to do that. Uh, when Dudley Connell, when we did that project where Dudley Connell was, uh, played the guitar on it, most of the rest of the guys in the band were Jimmy Martin band members mm -hmm. at the time. Earl Yeager and Audie Blaylock and myself. And, and uh, we all we all played with that rhythm that Jimmy likes. I'm a hard-working living man, I work from dust till dawn. On Friday I get my money, on Monday's nearly gone. It seems I can't save a dollar, no matter how I try. If things don't get better, I don't know how I'll ever get by. When that CD came out, it went over pretty good, and people wanted to see the band. Oh, well, there was no band, but maybe I can get them all together. <laughs> it was basically Jimmy's band. Ba yeah. Basically, Jimmy's band <laughs> with Dudley Connell, and uh, so we uh, we did play about a dozen jobs, uh, and Dudley commented that. Uh, the rhythm was so good, but it was different than he was used to. And yeah. you could hear it in, in Dudley's rhythm on the guitar. Dudley tends to play more, or did then up to that point, play more of a Stanley Brother type of rhythm. Do you think he changed a little after that because of that experience? Well, I think he might have, uh, having then gone with uh, the seldom seen, mm -hmm. because they're not Stanley Brothers Right. In any way, shape, or form. Uh -huh. I think his rhythm did change. But he even ad admitted that that when he was helping us out on these shows, that his rhythm changed when we got together and played because we kind of pulled him into it. Yeah. You know, subconsciously. He, yeah, he kind of didn't have a choice. He just, well, sort of, yeah, sort of just went with it, you know. <laughs> it's hard not to play that once you've learned it and gotten used to to playing with that with that rhythmic bounce. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Now, you did two separate stints with uh, Jimmy, is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. What were the circumstances of of you leaving the first time, and then what made it seem like a good idea to join back up? Well, the first time uh, I left for the pretty much the same reason everybody leaves is, is not making enough money. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jimmy was still hard to uh, to deal with a lot of times, and then not making money on top of it. <laughs> that's a hard combination. Uh, yeah, that's that gets to be a little tough to take. So uh, Bill Monroe had offered me the job while I was with Jimmy, and oddly enough, we were rehearsing at Jimmy's house for a, for a record. And uh, for those of you who remember what records are, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're those big vinyl things that you used to put on record players. They're back in style now, Chris. Uh, that's what I hear, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
So James Monroe called called me at Jimmy's house, and Jimmy and the whole band are right in the same room uh-huh. where the telephone is. So here I am on the on the phone with James Monroe, offering me the job with Jimmy or with uh, Bill. Yeah, this was in the '60s, and I was just felt like I was starting to get the feel of Jimmy's music and uh, starting to play it halfway decently. And uh, so I, I turned Bill down. Looking back on it, I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not, you know. But at any rate, I did it. But I would have hated to have stood in front of Jimmy and, and say, yeah, I'll take the job. I'll see you, Jimmy. Yeah. You know, that was un- uncomfortable. But uh, But I stayed with Jimmy. And six months later, then, I, I, I quit, moved back to Pennsylvania. In the 80s, about 85, Tom Adams had just quit Jimmy, and Jimmy was looking for a banjo player. And he, he had called me to fill in on a local job, um, which I did, and I got Earl Yeager. The base, that's where Jimmy got to know Earl Yeager who eventually came with us on the bass. But um, after absorbing all the things Jimmy was teaching me in the 60s and having time to, having 20 years to think about it, yeah, I was better at playing his music then by the second time around than I was the first time around. And uh, we went down, helped him on the show, and, and uh, everything just, everything just felt like we'd been together for those 20 years as a band. Oh, it, wow. it, it just clicked. Don't ask me why, but it just yeah. clicked. Jimmy was probably the happiest I've ever seen him. He was jumping, dancing around and laughing <laughs> and carrying on. He was loving it. Yeah. So then he offered me the job right then <clears throat> again. And, and uh, at the time, I wasn't thinking at all about doing it again, mm-hmm. you know, with Jimmy. And as much as I loved his music, I turned him down at the time, and uh, Jimmy said, well, if you don't want to move to Nashville, you know, could you just meet, meet me at the jobs? I said, well, I just, I'm just not interested, Jimmy. So that's where we left it. Yeah. And I came home, and I talked it over with my wife, and, and um, she loves bluegrass as much as I did. Uh, and uh, she said, well, why don't you do it? Why don't you do it for one summer? see how it goes, you know. So yeah. the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, if you're up for it, I'm up for it. So I called him back, and he hadn't found anybody yet. So uh, then I started back with him. Yeah. And then stayed for four years. Now, I know you mentioned that the when you uh, did that filling gig that the music sounded great, and it was a great experience. But uh, did you have any reason to believe that the um, the other reasons that you left that those were maybe going to be a different situation, such as uh, was he making more money at that time and or was he easier to deal with in some ways? Well, he was. it turned out that, that he was easier to deal with because I was playing his music better. Okay. And he, di- he didn't have to say anything to me about how to play because, like I say, over the years, I remembered everything he told me. Yeah, and I would be playing with a band, and uh, all of a sudden it would dawn on me, you know. Oh yeah, that's that's the way Jimmy. I remember that's what he wanted me to do. I uh-huh. get it. I get it now. <laughs> you know, I understand it. Then I could put it to use, work on it, practice it. And so by the time '85 rolled around, 
and I went back with him. Uh, I was pretty comfortable with playing his music, yeah. and uh, he seemed to like it. He didn't say much, and then later, a year or so later, then uh, that same bass player came with us, uh, Earl Yeager. Earl, yeah. yeah, cool. So we've talked a lot about you playing Jimmy's music, but I'm wondering if you have a way of explaining when did you feel you growing into having your own style as a banjo player and and how would you describe that style? Well, I don't know that I have all that different style from any other hard driving bluegrass player. Uh, I always like to hard drive and traditional. That's what I'm best at. That's what I enjoy doing. Uh, I've played a little melodic over the years and and still do if it calls for it. Mm-hmm. But my love is in traditional hard driving bluegrass, and that's what I try to play. I try to stick to the melody. Yeah. Uh, if I have a style at all, it's for the most part sticking to the melody and trying to play as much of the melody as I can, not straying too far. It's one of those things, if you get, get a chance to play two breaks in a song. The first one you play the melody, the second one you can go a little off, yeah. and hopefully you can uh, come up with some licks that nobody's played before mm-hmm. along the way. You know, you you mentioned your hard driving style as, as kind of the basis for your approach, and then also playing the melody. Do you have uh, any advice for people looking to work on either of those aspects? The main advice I would give anybody that's just coming along and learning is to learn the scrug style mm-hmm. and concentrate on the timing end of it. Yeah. The rhythm and the timing and get get that, that get a good feel for that. I can't say enough about learning Earl Scruggs first. Right. And then once you get fairly proficient at playing Scruggs style, you know, you can go off and start doing your own thing. It gives you a good solid foundation. And you can go off doing uh, melodic, you know, Bill Keith type of stuff, Tony mm-hmm. Trishka type stuff. And if you ask either one of those guys the same question, I'll guarantee you they'll tell you the same thing. Get a good foundation in Scrug style first. I've run into guys over the years that start right out playing melodic. Yeah. Because they love Tony Trishka stuff. They love Bill Keith stuff, you right. know. And I get that. I understand that. Why they would, if that's their like. But it doesn't give them a good solid foundation as far as timing, a good right hand, you know, and drive. Yeah. Uh, a lot of guys that start into melodic right away are the feel for it is kind of wishy washy. You know, they tend to play up in the middle of the head anyway, where you get a, a, a mushier, you know. Uh, instead of being back here, yeah. Where you get a good solid feel. I always tried to play what melodic I played back where I would normally play my breaks. Yeah. And not do not move up here because because I always hated to hear that mushy that to me is for backup. Uh Uh-huh. You know. Instead of mushy like that, I'd rather hear it snappier, you know. 
That's my that's my likes. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I can always tell when a record comes on, CD comes on, the radio or something, where they're playing. Oh yeah, you, you yeah, can, it makes a big you difference. You can tell they're yeah. up here than rather than back here. Absolutely. Um, but uh, there again, that that's me. That's my preference. Now you just raised the issue of of playing backup. Um, let me hear you talk about that. I know you said Jimmy always wanted you to play rolling backup. Does that continue to kind of be your sensibility for what a banjo should do? Well, uh, of course, not on the slower stuff. Obviously, you know. Um, he liked all those licks. Um, he just wants something going on all the time. Yeah. You know, Jimmy's main instrument is the banjo. Bill Monroe's is the violin, the fiddle. You know, that's uh, Bill likes the fiddle. Right. Uh, but Jimmy likes Jimmy likes the the banjo to uh -huh. be to be doing something all the time. So uh, here again, the the attack with your right hand, even on backup, you don't want it to be lazy. Uh, you want it to pop a little bit, yeah. You know, so you deaden the notes. You know, sharp, sharp notes, not, you know, yeah, to, to make it extreme one side or the other, but, uh, but it's very noticeable. Yeah. Uh, so you, so you deaden those notes, what I call popping the notes, you know, uh, like that instead of. Yeah. You know, if I had to guess, I would say that your taste in, for example, the rock and roll music that you enjoyed, was that more, I guess I'll say aggressive. That sounds like a, a, a bad word, but, um, no, you I, know, the, the more aggressive attack yeah. in the rock and roll. Yeah. I, I feel like that made you a good fit for uh, playing this style of music well, later I in never, your life. I never thought of it that way, but now that you mention it, man, it's a possibility, you know, that, mm. That more aggressive is a good word for it, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's the kind of rock and roll I, I liked, and, uh, and and that's the way I like to hear my bluegrass. You know? Yeah. I really enjoy your playing on, on some of your solo albums that you were doing throughout a lot of those years. Some of those done while you were in Jimmy's band. Uh, yeah, the uh, the first three albums I did when they were still albums, long play albums, uh, were done when I was with Jimmy in the late '80s. Uh -huh. And then later on, I had stopped playing for a while, and then when I came back, I started playing with Audie Blaylock, and I didn't have any CDs out. 
so I took those, the last two of those LP projects and uh, put them on, uh, on a CD. Yeah. So it's a double album CD on the back, with, uh, entitled Back Again. But then I did another CD later that uh, just as a, as a project. I was playing with anybody at the time, but right. I just wanted to do another. I, I had written some songs and um, wanted to use those songs, so uh, uh, I put them on uh, uh, a lot of them on that CD. I guess what I'm curious about is, uh, I mean, for for one thing, like you mentioned, that's a really good opportunity for folks to go get some of that music that isn't available on on the LP anymore. You can still get it in the CD form, even though it's like under a different name and stuff. But um, you mentioned that Jimmy didn't want his players going out and picking at festivals with, with other people. I'm wondering if he had a same or a similar type of attitude about you doing solo recordings. Would you, do you have any knowledge of like what he thought about you doing that or did he mind? He didn't mind that at all. Hmm. He didn't mind that at all. <clears throat> what he did mind was between his jobs coming back wherever you were living, most everybody in, in the band in the 80s, in fact, everybody in the band in the 80s didn't live in Nashville. Mm -hmm. You know, we just kind of converged on the job yeah, like spokes of a wheel and yeah. <laughs> played the show and yeah. then dispersed back. Meet in the middle, right. Yeah, <laughs> Dobro Player was from North Carolina. Aldi was from uh, Michigan. Uh, uh, me and Earl from Pennsylvania. So, uh -huh. But what he did mind was going back home and playing with local bands. Oh, wow. And believe it or not, we didn't we didn't believe it at first either. He he said, I can always tell when you guys go home and start picking with other bands. He said, and you come back, he said, I can tell you've been doing that. And we wow. thought we thought, ah, but he could. <laughs> what do you think it was? Or what it Well, I think it's because we didn't have that got away from that nucleus Jimmy's sound uh -huh. and Jimmy's guitar, and now we're we go home and just because we wanted to play or make a couple extra dollars at it, you sure. know, we went with other bands and filled in, uh -huh. and subconsciously got away from that total wow. feel that we had when we were all together with Jimmy. Interesting. He could tell it. He could tell it right away. He said, "You guys been playing with other bands, haven't you?" <laughs> Yeah, we have. <laughs> he busted you on that a few yeah, times? Yeah, he did. Yep. Oh. Let's talk about some of your other work in terms of like your, you've made quite a side business out of your setup and your luthery. When did you become interested in that and develop those skills? Well, that all started not long after I started to play the banjo when I was 16. I couldn't afford to pay somebody else to, to do my repair work. So, uh, uh, I just started to tinker with my own instruments and learned to repair my own instruments and then uh, got to where I was decent at it. And 
a local fella was just starting a music store over in York. And uh, he did the repair work and ran the, ran the business uh, for maybe six months. And then he got too busy with the business that he didn't have time to do all the repair work. So he asked me if I'd want to work for him, do the repair work. He had, he had taught me a lot previous to that when mm -hmm. I was still in, t in the tinkering phase. Uh -huh. uh, he had showed me how to do a lot of repair work. So he started me off. He was a good repairman. Bob Campbell was his name. His son still runs a business in York's Campbell's Music. But um, I started working for him doing repair work, and I was there uh, from about a couple of years, and then I got the job with Jimmy. Okay. And um, moved to Nashville for two years. Then when I came back, I got the job at, uh, again doing the repair yeah, work. yeah. And I was there for 20-some years. Now, do I understand correctly that you are also involved in, like, vintage firearm, either restorations or, or um, replicas, stuff of that nature? Yeah, I, I had gotten interested in uh, flintlock rifles, shooting them and building them. And uh, I worked at a, at a local uh, uh, gun shop building flintlock rifles there again for about 20 years or so, 22 years. And um, we would go to what they call rendezvous, mm -hmm. where people dress up traditional. Okay. In, in period. Like the reenactors. And, and, yeah, so, okay. and, and camp out in tents for a week. You uh -huh. know? And uh, Similar to a bluegrass festival, yeah, as it turns pretty out. Much like, <laughs> pretty much like a bluegrass festival, except you're in different garb. Yeah, <laughs> only slightly. <laughs> Um, so so yeah, I I, uh, I got real wrapped up in in building flintlocks, and uh, I don't hardly do any of it now anymore. But yeah. I I built a lot of them over the years. Well, given that you've also taken to uh, building recreation necks for like conversion banjos, I'm wondering if a lot of those skills tend to overlap or have helped you, you know, with each other. Oh yeah, definitely, without a doubt. I was building <clears throat> I was building banjo necks before I got into the flintlock. So mm. so the those skills just being meticulous about building a nice neck. Yeah. You know, definitely transfers into whatever you want to build. Yeah. It, it's just that the the item is different. The you know the gun has different features, and but uh, once you develop an eye for the feel of a neck or the looks of a neck, you know that transfers over into the looks of a and the feel of a of a rifle. Uh, going back to setup, are there any pieces of advice that you give from from all of your experience? What are some of the important aspects to setup? Maybe even ones that people don't normally think about. Well, there's a few <clears throat> rules of thumb in in setting up a banjo that that will help in in a setup. Mm -hmm. For example, the height of the tailpiece, the higher the tailpiece is off the head, the more mellow it tone you tend to get. Yeah, the closer down to the head you you crank the tailpiece, the brighter it tends to get. Uh, in most situations, uh, every banjo is different. Of course, the obvious thing is the tightness of the head. Yeah. Um, tighter, the brighter, looser, the, the more mellow, softer, darker tone you get. Yeah. The height of the strings, a lot of guys want to play them, the strings 
as low as they can possibly get them, which is understandable. But if you tend to be a hard player, you can't play them real low right. with, with light gauge strings, you know. Uh-huh. You have to get the action up a little higher or use heavier strings. But uh, those are kind of two ru- a couple rules of thumb there that you can start with. Make sure the neck's tight to the body, you know, that the neck's not loose. You lose transference of vibration from the, the banjo pot to the neck, which makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the height of the fret, if, if the frets are too low, you can't get a good bite on the mm-hmm. string with your finger. It's a lot of this stuff is makes a minimal difference. Mm-hmm. But it makes a difference. Yeah. So if you get all, all the, adds together. If yeah. you get all these little things right, <laughs> you know, then you start being able to get the maximum out of your banjo. Yeah. The bridge is a big, big, big factor. I had a banjo one time, a uh, it was a <clears throat> TB2 uh tenor style two Gibson that I built a neck for and put a tone ring in it and uh, uh, just never sounded right. Just, Mm. I had it for about a year and every time I'd pick it up, I just, I didn't like it at all. Uh You know, I'm thinking this thing should sound better than this, you know, Uh, because I used a Bill Sullivan tone ring and they were always decent rings. I used a lot of them, Mm -hmm. but it just didn't sound right. So I thought one day, <clears throat> this one I had in my music store, and I had it sitting on a rack on the on the floor in the store. So I thought, I'm going to see what I can do to, <laughs> to start monkeying to with get it. this thing better. This should be a better banjo than it is. Yeah. So I had a <clears throat> a drawer of old bridges, a whole bunch of old bridges that I took off instruments and just threw in the drawer. Yeah. So I started going through these bridges and started swapping bridges, and I finally hit a bridge that was just fit that banjo. That banjo just exploded in sound. Wow. And I'm thinking, holy cow. I mean, I knew a bridge would make a difference, but I didn't think it'd make this much difference. Yeah. And from then on, I realized how much that little piece of wood makes a difference in the sound and setup of a banjo. Yeah. That banjo just exploded. And that's a banjo I used on one of my projects. And, uh, I gave a CD to Jim Mills, and he heard that. And he said, what banjo are you playing on there? I said, it's just a TB2 with a Sullivan tone ring. And he said, man, he said, that thing really sounds great. He said, do you still have it? I said, no, I sold it years ago. Do you recall what the bridge was that made no, the difference? No, it was just something I had in the drawer, you know. I, I assume that you think it's not the matter of this is a good bridge or a bad bridge. It's more about the the pairing between the what bridge a banjo might respond absolutely, to. Absolutely, absolutely. Every banjo responds differently. You can put five different tone rings in the same banjo and try them, and they'll all sound different. Mm-hmm. You can put five different bridges on the same banjo, and they'll all sound different. It's right. it's finding that that right combination that everything starts to vibrate as one. Mm-hmm. It's like a band playing with that rhythm as one. That's a great analogy, you I know? think. Yeah. Uh, there was a local banjo player, Bill Runkle. Maybe you heard of Bill I have Runkle. heard of Bill. Played with Dale McCurry years mm-hmm. ago. He recently, he passed away during COVID. But he was a great mechanic, car mechanic. Okay. And he told me one time, I've never forgotten this. 
He said, you can have a hundred motors, car engines coming off the assembly line at the same time. Mm -hmm. And one out of that hundred might just run heads and tails above the rest of them. He said, that's because just by chance, all the parts that went into that motor were just balanced right. Mm -hmm. The, the, uh, tolerances were just right. Yeah. He said everything, every now and again you get a motor, it's not souped up, it's not been touched, it comes off the line, but it's just a killer of an engine. Yeah. And I always equated that with a banjo. Yeah, I think that you works get, really well. If you get all those parts, even the the, the neck would, mm -hmm. uh, because the neck's as important to the banjo as uh, sound-wise as everything else. Right. And if you get the right piece of wood paired with the the pot and the right tone ring bridge and they all start vibrating as one, then you got a killer banjo. And there's, I mean, back to our point though, there's, it seems like there's very little way to predict that. No. How about when you're building a neck? Do you ever know with a neck that, oh, this is a great, specimen of wood or I've done a particularly good job on this one and is it does that ever translate to it actually sounding better no I don't I don't think <laughs> like you said you you can't predict that yeah uh, you could have an aged piece of wood make the nicest neck you've ever made in your life and put it on a banjo and it just might be mediocre mm -hmm. you might be able to take that neck off and put it on another pot and it just might be a killer <laughs> You just can never figure it out. Yeah, incredible. And, and that's the difficult part in setting and picking a banjo. Yeah. You just never know if you have the right combination of parts. Tough to know what the real potential of yeah. it is, yeah. whether you've reached it or not. I had three banjos here a while back, two, two TB3s that were converted and a four. They were all pretty good. I played them all for a while. But they just weren't anything that just knocked your socks off. At least it didn't me, you know. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to swap tone rings around and just see what I get. Yeah. There was a chrome tone ring in one of the th threes. So I put that in the four, which is a chrome banjo. Mm -hmm. So it fit that looks-wise. And, and I swapped the other ones around, and it made all three of them sound better. Wow. I couldn't hardly believe it myself. Yeah. I thought, man— I lucked out here. I hit the right. <laughs> I hit the right combination here, yeah. you know, and that's the way I left them. I thought I'm not going to monkey with them anymore, you know. Right. Yeah. I guess that. I guess that's the other half of it is you can banjos inherently have any number of adjustments you can make, but maybe that's the lesson is if you do find the right one, you probably best uh, yeah, quit messing with it. Sometimes you can. Uh, you can over monkey. <laughs> you can over monkey with a banjo, <laughs> and uh, and make it worse if you're not careful. Yeah, you know. Was there a particular banjo that you played throughout most of your career? Not any one banjo. I had uh, when I was with Jimmy in the '60s. I bought an original pre-war RB3. Uh, excuse me, RB4. Hmm. A flathead. Fl flathead that uh, I bought it from Jim Smoke. It was down at Rule Yarborough's one time, and I asked him. I said, "Rule, do you have anything interesting down here?" He said, "Well, I got this. I got this RB4 
Jim Smoke's banjo. Jim Jim played it for ages, and it was in rough shape, but uh, it was eight hundred and fifty dollars. Okay, and and that was in sixty eight. Okay, way back in sixty eight. Yeah, <laughs> back in the old days, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I didn't have any money. I mean, working with Jimmy, you don't have any money, <laughs> you know. So I said, uh, I said, I really don't have $850. I said, can uh, you think we can work? He can work with me. He said, yeah. He said, Jim's a pretty good guy. I never met him. He said, let me call him. So he got him on the phone. And uh, Jim was gracious enough to never met me, just on rules say so. Uh, he let me pay $50 a month until oh, I paid it off. Yeah. Uh, when I came back home, uh, from being with Jimmy, I was flat busted. <laughs> I had a I had a '59 Ford with a reverse gear out of the transmission. Okay, <laughs> uh, I had a wife and a daughter, <laughs> and no money. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the only thing I had worth anything was a banjo. So I ended up selling it to a friend of mine. Okay, uh, and I don't know where that banjo is now. Uh, he sold it some years later, but uh, that's one one I recorded. One of the albums with Jimmy with. Okay. As far as having one for 20 years that I used religiously, mm -hmm. no. I just, uh, uh, if I had a banjo and somebody wanted to buy it, Figure I out sold way. it yeah. and, just, and just got something else, yeah. you know. Interesting. Uh, up, up until recently uh, that I could afford to keep some, some of the stuff that I've had over the years. Back then, I was always in need of money. Mm. For rent or a car or whatever, you know. Ooh, yeah. So I'd buy and sell them. <laughs> yeah, you know? that makes sense. Uh, what project uh, of all the recordings you've made, whether it's Jimmy or solo, uh, is there anything that you're the most proud of your playing on? With Jimmy specifically? No, or? just a, just anyone who wants to. Oh, I've never heard of this Chris Warner guy. I gotta I gotta check him out. What would you point them towards first that you're most proud of? Well, to be honest with you, I like the last project I did. With Jimmy, I wish I could get a chance to do some of it over because I've gotten better yeah. from the first time we recorded in the 60s. Yeah. I've gotten better after that. And um, being that I was so young when I went with him, you know, yeah. young and naive. <laughs> uh, but I, got a, I had plenty of time to get better. I wish I had a chance to do a lot of that over. Yeah. Uh, as far as being most... Most proud, I would say, uh, my projects that I that I did on my own that are more recent. Okay, you know, yeah, those are some great ones. And just for the record, sometimes it's tough to find this information. Which of Jimmy's albums are you on? I'm on the uh, uh, Freeborn Man album. My name's actually, <clears throat> they, they put the band's name on the Tennessee album, okay. but we're not on that album. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. The, the Tennessee album came out. A heart can 
while we were with Jimmy. Okay. Me, and, me and Herschel Sizemore and Bill Yates. But it had been recorded. But it had all been recorded prior to that. Oh, my God. So we're listed as being on the Tennessee album, and we're not on This it. is why it's confusing, and that's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Freeborn Man album, I think I'm, I'm on all but three, which were pre-recorded tunes. Okay. And then Jimmy called me one time and went down and did... Uh, I did four songs on uh, his first greatest hits album. And he re-recorded those? Uh, yeah, he re-recorded some of them. He re-recorded Freeborn Man, uh, J.D. Crows on the, on the second cut, and uh, Kenny Ingram. Me and Kenny and J.D. are on that album, mm -hmm. each doing about four, four cuts. Cool. All right. Well, I guess to to wrap up, is there is there anything else you would want people to know about you or your playing or your career? Well, I'm not doing any playing right now, so my career is pretty much over. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I only play enough to test out instruments that I've worked on, repaired, and set up. Yeah. Uh, I don't go out and play anymore. So that that phase of my life is is done with. My wife and I have have horses. Oh, cool. And uh, between the horses and doing repair work part-time out of my house here, that pretty much keeps me busy. Is the repair work something that you want, uh, that you would encourage people to seek you out for, or are you trying to kind of keep that on the well, on the down low as well? I don't want to get too much. I, I, I like banjo work <laughs> primarily. Well, uh, I mean, feel free to let people know how to contact you if they're interested in that. Uh, I, I don't advertise. Okay. You know, uh, I don't have a store or shingle hanging out. Right. right. It's just word of mouth. No website or nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No website. Uh, if they need any work done on on banjos specifically, uh, they could uh, contact me. Telephone would be the best at seven one seven two five nine nine three nine three. Close to York. I'm in East Berlin. Close to York. Other than that, I don't advertise. Whatever comes along, I'll, yeah, fair enough. I'll do that's great. Well, hey, thank you so much again for your hospitality and for taking the time to talk banjos with me. It's been a really cool afternoon. Sure, thanks. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in, folks. That's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The song clips you heard in this episode were Raking the Coals by Chris Warner, Milwaukee Here I Come by Jimmy Martin, several more by Chris Warner, including Lock, Stock, and Barrel, Sorrows All Around Me, High and Dry, and Lickety Split, and then finally the song Slowly by Jimmy Martin. Don't forget to do all your holiday shopping over at BanjoPodcast.com for those custom logo t-shirts, hats, stickers, and more. Special thanks to Sean McCormick, this episode's VIP supporter of the show. Head over to Patreon.com slash BanjoPodcast to support the show yourself or just to uh, join in on our monthly video chat coming up on December 21st. Get your daily banjo licks by going to BanjoLicks.com and using coupon code PICKY50 to get 50% off your first month of daily banjo licks. Contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Have a great rest of your day, and I will see you all next time. <laughs>